Let me pray first, and then we'll pick up here where we left off, uh, right around verse 8 of chapter 3. 1 Peter chapter 3, right around verse 8. Let's pray first. Father, it's good to be in your house tonight. It's good to just settle ourselves before you, to draw near to you through worship, and to enjoy the fellowship of one another in the body of Christ. And Lord, as we open up your word now, speak to us. There's so much of our lives that we need to be challenged in your word and so many rough spots that need to be sanded down, so many areas that could be improved as we wrestle with our own flesh and as we deal with the various temptations of our world and just the work of the enemy and, and just the toll that, that things take on us. It's good to come in your house in the middle of the week and just draw near to you. So fill us up afresh with your Holy Spirit and use this time in your word to just minister to our hearts. We love you and we praise you. We thank you that you first loved us and died on a cross for our sins. We pray these things in Jesus' name. And everybody said, Amen. Well, if you've been with us here for the past couple of weeks in First Peter, you will note with me that the key word... Uh, for the section that we're in here is harmony, where uh, Peter is writing here about the kind of harmony that we need to have in various areas of our lives. And he basically breaks it down into four areas, three of which we talked about last week. He talks about how to have harmony in the world, and he spends some time uh, back in chapter 2 uh, between verses uh, uh, 13 and um, uh, 14. Uh, and and uh, through, through verse 16, having to do with submission to government, that's the idea of the world, that there's no authority except that which God has established, Romans chapter 13. And so we are to respect government. We are to respect those in authority. Paul says in First Timothy chapter 2, we are to pray for all our kings and all of our leaders and, and those in authority that we might live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. So there's, there's supposed to be a respect for government and for authority and for leaders Obviously, as I mentioned last week and I touched on this past Sunday, there might be times when, in fact, civil disobedience is necessary. Whenever the laws of man contradict the higher law of God, we must always, as Christ followers, obey the higher law of God. And so it might result sometimes in some civil disobedience. But nevertheless, uh, without that... Uh, there needs to be this constant uh, reminder that there are some people in authority that we need to respect. And so if, you, if we're to have harmony in the world and in our government, we are to uh, be Christ followers who respect government authority. And then also harmony in the workplace, um, the section uh, starting at verse 18 of chapter 2 down through the end of chapter 2, having to do with even the, though you might find yourself in an otherwise uh, not ideal situation, you still have to, as Paul writes in Colossians 3, verses 23 and 24, you have to serve people, work for people, do your job well as unto the Lord. That, that everything that we do is to be done as unto the Lord and that the Lord will reward us uh, for our faithfulness to him. And so there needs to be this awareness. How do we maintain harmony in, in the workplace and then harmony in the home? That's where we left off last week at chapter 3, the first uh, seven verses having to do with uh, husbands and wives and how God has ordained a certain uh, structure. Uh, that's even the word submission is hupatasso, meaning an, an orderly arrangement that God has arranged things in an orderly way so that there might be harmony in the home. He calls husbands to step it up 
and to be loving spiritual leaders in a home. And he calls wives to understand that in times where there's a tiebreaker that they should yield that to their husband and ladies try to refrain from being the Holy Spirit in your husband's lives. I know sometimes you want us to be better spiritual leaders, but pray for us instead of trying to be the voice of the Holy Spirit. Just pray for your husbands. And, and so, and guys step it up and be loving leaders, um, and, and, uh, honoring your wives and, and so Peter talks about that as well. And then there's this fourth category that we'll get to maybe by the, by, before we um, break for the baptisms tonight at the end of chapter 3 when he talks about harmony in heaven. But again, just understanding the main theme here, uh, harmony in, in a musical sense is the use of simultaneous tones working together in an orderly arrangement to achieve a pleasant, unified sound or effect. We know what, what the term means musically, but the idea here biblically is that harmony assumes differences among people who are brought together in unity under a master composer. Obviously, that's Jesus. So that's the whole idea that, you know, there's going to be differences in every area. There's going to be differences among, in all of these arenas. There's going to be differences in government. We see that all the time on the news 24-7. There's a lot of differences. There's going to be differences in the workplace. There's going to be differences in the home. Um, there are differences wherever you have people, people are different, which is good. I mean, all of the differences add to the richness, the diversity adds to the richness of, of whatever the relationship, the, the key is how do we work towards harmony rather than conflict? Because our differences can sometimes, uh, serve to be conflicts in our relationships rather than working together, serving one another under the leadership and lordship of Jesus so that we might really gain harmony uh, in, in these different areas. And so this is the challenge to, to all of us. We are called to live in harmony. We are called to be at peace with one another. And so here in chapter 3, uh, verse 8, which is really the verse that is the theme behind all of this, he writes this, finally, all of you be of one mind, and that's that Greek word homophron, meaning same mind or harmonious. NIV says live in harmony with one another. Having compassion for one another, love as brothers, be tenderhearted, be courteous, not returning evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, blessing, knowing that you were called to this, that you may inherit a blessing. So if you just look at those uh, verses there, verses 8 and 9, he basically just outlines for us in, in general terms that if we want to really be people of harmony, we need to first of all be people of one mind. Now, that, that already assumes differences again. We are different people, but the idea is that we should all be striving to share the same mind, attitudes, and thoughts of Christ. That if He truly is Lord of our lives, Lord of our homes, Lord of our businesses, Lord of everything, that wherever we have differences among us, and there are plenty, we need to strive together, even in our differences, to, to go after what is the mind of Christ on matters. What is, what is the attitude of Christ in, in a situation? Paul would write in Philippians 2 verse 5, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. We should always be striving together, despite our differences, in finding out, well, what is the heart of God on this matter? What is the mind of Christ on this matter? 
You know, if, if he is truly Lord of our lives and our homes and our marriages and everything about us, then we should always be striving to find out what is the mind of Christ on this. Having one mind, being, being under Christ, having compassion. Circle that word in your Bible. Compassion. We're to be compassionate towards one another. Uh, love as brothers and sisters. This is phileo in, in the Greek. It is that, that brotherly love. We should be loving towards one another. Uh, to be tender-hearted is the other word there in verse 8. To be tender-hearted. Courteous. Um, some of your translations might say the word humble instead of courteous. This is how we maintain harmony. When we demonstrate these kind of attitudes, compassionate, sympathetic, loving, tender-hearted, courteous, or humble. Again, verse 9, not returning evil for evil. In other words, and, and NIV says not insult for insult. Um, we are not to be vengeful. We are to leave that up to the Lord. And on the contrary, he says here, blessing. So instead of returning evil for evil... Or reviling for reviling. We're to be people who bless one another. And just in the name of the Lord, encourage one another. Knowing, he says, that you were called to this. We were called to this. God calls us to be compassionate, sympathetic, loving, tender-hearted, courteous, humble, not vengeful, not insulting, but blessing others. Because he says, to this you were called, that you may inherit a blessing. And then he adds in verse 10, and he quotes out of Psalm 34 here, For he who would love life and see good days, let him refrain his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayers. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. And so Peter basically is writing here saying, listen, Psalm 34, verses 12 to 16, which is basically what he's quoting here, uh, are fulfilled for righteous living. You want to love life and see good days? He says, well, refrain your tongue from evil. How about we start there? How many of you could use a little restraint on your tongue? All right. Uh, His lips from speaking deceit. Turn away from evil. Do good. Seek peace, pursue it. So, in other words, he's saying here, listen, if, if, if we want the blessing of the Lord, we, ha- we have to, you know, consciously be working on these things. We have to be guarding our lips and watching what we say. We have to be living lives that are honorable and glorifying to God. If we, if we want to inherit a blessing, we need to be a blessing. And so, he's challenging his readers to live a life that is glorifying to God and honoring of other people. And this is important for us as believers. Living our lives in a way that glorifies God and honors others. This is what he calls us to. He says, this is what you were called to. The Christian life should be characterized by these things. And then he adds in verse 13, And who is he who will harm you if you become followers of what is good? But even if you should suffer, circle that word there in your Bibles, even if you should suffer for righteousness sake, You are blessed and do not be afraid of their threats, nor be troubled, but sanctify the Lord God in your hearts and always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you with meekness and fear, 
having a good conscience, that when they defame you as evildoers, those who revile your good conduct in Christ may be ashamed. For it is better, if it is the will of God, to suffer, there's the word again, for doing good than for doing evil. So let's pause there and just break down this section. You'll notice with me, I asked you to circle the word suffer. It appears twice in this section here. And actually the word suffer or some form of that word appears 17 times in the book of 1 Peter alone. 17 times. This is a major theme in the book of 1 Peter because if you remember in our opening of chapter 1, Peter is writing this during a time when uh, Christians are being martyred uh, like never before. Between the years A.D. 64 and 67, this is when Christians under the Emperor Nero, who were the Christians who were blamed for Rome burning, uh, were, were martyred. And uh, they were dying by the tens of thousands. They were being rounded up and persecuted and killed for their faith. And that's the climate, all right? And that's what's happening. And Peter writes to Christians living during this time, and he encourages them about their suffering because he says basically christ has suffered for us so be prepared for a little suffering yourselves and he says even if you should suffer for righteousness sake there in verse 13 you're blessed like god's going to take care of you and he says don't be afraid of their threats now again he's writing to christians whose lives are on the line during this particular time and he says don't be afraid of their threats don't be troubled He says, sanctify the Lord your God in your hearts. Now, the word sanctify just means to set apart as holy. So so he's calling us to holy living. And we're not even living under the threat of of death like they were. But yet they're being challenged in this way. He says, I want you, even in the face of suffering, to the point where your lives might even be required of you, to be sanctifying Christ in your heart. Set him apart as holy. Living for the Lord. Sanctify the Lord God in your hearts and always be ready. Notice this verse 15 to give a defense to everyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. Having a good conscience that when they defame you as evildoers, those who revile your, you, your good conduct in Christ may be ashamed. So. Let's park it here for just a minute because um, he's going to tell us here about being ready to give a defense of the faith. Um, And it's an important uh, point that he makes for us to be challenged in our own lives today. So he says there in verse 15 that we need to be ready to give a defense. That phrase, to give a defense, is one word in the Greek and it's apologia. We, We get the English word apologetics. Apologetics in in Christian terms is one who is able to give a defense of his or her faith. That's what apologetics means. We we get the English word apology out of it too, but when we think of apology, we, we you know we're we're sorry and ashamed of something. But apologetics, in the truest, the strictest Greek way, means that we are to um, be prepared to give in a defense for something. And in this case, in this context, the apologia, the defense, the apologetics, is to be prepared to defend your faith. And what he's going to tell us here in this passage is that there are three things, and we'll just go over these three things, that are necessary if you and I want to be ready to give a defense of our faith. And the first one is a good example. A good example. And I've got questions after each of these three points that we need to ask ourselves. And the question that corresponds to point number one, example, is the question, is my life 
a good example of Christ. Because people will only ask if they notice something different. Right? And this is what Peter is saying here. He says, always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you. The implication is there's something about your life and my life that gives reason for people to ask us. And the only reason people would want to ask us what's going on with us is if they notice something different about us. So the first key in order to really give a defense of our faith, if you and I want to be a good witness, if we want to have an an evangelistic uh, impact in people's lives, it first starts with being a good example. We have to be people who are not Christians in name only, but also in action. Because if it's name only without action, then it's hypocrisy. If we say we're a Christian, but we're not living like one, then we're not setting a good example. And people are certainly not going to want what we have because we look too much like they live. So if we offer them something as an example of Christ that is different from the life that they're living, they might be more inclined to ask us, what's the deal with you? What's going on with your life? How come when you just got that bad news, you just seem to be at peace? How come come you, you seem to be able to deal with things in your marriage that my wife and I aren't able to deal with, or my husband and I aren't able to, and they'll start to ask questions. Like, how do you have your life together? What's, what's the deal? Because hopefully we're living a life that is a good example of Christ. The second thing that's important in order for us to be ready to give a defense of the faith, number two, is explanation. And the question with that is, am I growing in the knowledge of scripture so that I can adequately explain what I believe? If people are going to ask us, We have to be ready to actually share something. Okay, I think it was St. Francis of Assisi who said, preach the gospel at all times, and if necessary, use words. So our lives are always on display. That's the example part. But then we should also be prepared to use words. That's the explanation part. And you're you're not going to be able to use words to defend your faith, to tell people why you believe what you believe, without having an adequate understanding of the Bible. Now, don't get, don't get overwhelmed by the idea that if I don't know everything from Genesis to Revelation, I won't be able to be a good witness to somebody. Trust me, I've been doing this full-time for 32 years. I'm the first one to say, there's a lot of passages of the Bible I don't know, I can't quote off the top of my head, okay? That's, the issue is not how much of the Bible are you prepared to answer. The issue is, are you growing in your faith? such that you're able to use enough scripture to adequately communicate what you believe and why you believe so that people can have an understanding of who Christ is, how he, just the basics, who Christ is, that he died for you on a cross, that he loves you, that he opened the way to heaven for all who would believe and receive, that it's a free gift that God gives us, that if we accept him by faith, we can be forgiven, we can go to heaven. I mean, the simplicity of the gospel shouldn't be overcomplicated, but we have to at least be growing in our faith enough to be able to adequately explain what we believe and why we believe it. And then number three, it, it also goes hand in hand with all of this, and that's expression. And the question is, am I careful to express myself? And these are the words that, that Peter uses here with meekness. Some of your translations say gentleness with fear. Some of your translations say respect and with a good conscience. So As we 
you know, as we express ourselves and our faith, we need to make sure that we're not coming across in some arrogant, abrasive, judgmental way. In other words, Peter's calling us to be a good witness, to be prepared to give an answer for all those who ask us. But when we do, when we explain it, make sure we're doing it with meekness, gentleness. Make sure we're doing it with fear or respect for people. Make sure that we're doing this out of a good conscience, that there's not hypocrisy in any of this, so that others might come to know Christ in the same way. And he adds there, if they defame you, if people say malicious things against you or about you as evildoers, those who revile your good conduct in Christ, you know, if you just continue to just live your life faithful to the Lord, let people say what they might. Uh, in the end, they, they'll probably be ashamed of saying what they do about you because your good conduct will prove your integrity. For if, he says, for it, in verse 17, is better if it is the will of God to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. Verse 18, for Christ also suffered, here's the same theme, once for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive by the Spirit, by whom also he went and preached to the spirits in prison, we'll talk about this in a minute, who formerly were disobedient, when once the divine long-suffering waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is, eight souls, were saved through water, there is also an antitype which now saves us, baptism, not the removal of the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience toward God, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God, angels and authorities and powers having been made subject to him. So let me just touch on that last verse, and then we'll go back up and talk about what in the world does all that mean. That last verse there about how Christ has gone into heaven, where angels and authorities and powers having been made subject to him, that's the fourth one on our list about the order of harmony. There's also order in heaven. And the same word here to be subject to is hupatasso, meaning there's, there's an order of submission in heaven. The angels and authorities, they are under submission to the Lordship of Jesus, who now presently is in heaven, seated at the right hand of God. But what is all this other stuff here that he talks about? Christ suffered once for our sins. We get this, right? Died on a cross, paid the price for us. And then it talks about in verse 19 that he also went and preached to the spirits in prison. I didn't know Jesus had a prison ministry. What, is the, what in the world is this talking about? What? So I'm going to read another passage out of Ephesians chapter 4. And you can turn there if you want or you can just listen. But, but I want to talk about this in just the few minutes we have left here before our baptisms tonight. And try to uh, tie this together. And the lead question before I read from Ephesians chapter 4 is this. What happened to Christ during the three days that his body lay in the tomb? Because in order to understand what we're talking about here, we have to ask that question. What happened to Jesus during the three days that his body lay in the tomb? Peter here refers to the idea of Jesus going to preach to the spirits in prison. Um, this is not a literal prison, but nevertheless, they are held captive in a certain place. It is important to note that Peter uses the word he preached. Jesus 
preached. It is the Greek word caruso, and it means to herald or to proclaim. It is a different word than evangelion, which means to evangelize. Keep that in mind because it'll make more sense when I unpack this with you. He goes to prison to a place where people's souls, it says here, are kept captive. And Peter specifically references people who in the days of Noah uh, disobeyed and they end up here captive. So where is Jesus? Where are these souls who are being held captive? And what does all this mean? So in Ephesians chapter 4, there's another kind of parallel passage that helps us to make sense of this. And in Ephesians 4, this is what it says in verses 7, 8, and 9. It says, But to each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ, of Christ's gift. Therefore, he says, When he ascended on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts to men. Now this, he ascended... What does it mean but that he also first descended into the lower parts of the earth? He who descended is also the one who ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. So let me try to make sense of this and and put Ephesians 4 together with 1 Peter chapter 3 in the last few minutes we have left here. Um, You can also go home later and read out of Luke chapter 16. There is a parable. It's actually a, a true story that is given to us in parabolic terms about a rich man who dies and a, a, uh, who is not a righteous guy and Lazarus, who is a righteous guy, who also dies. And they go to two different places separated by a gulf or a chasm. And in Luke chapter 16, in this parable, uh, the idea is that Lazarus, who was righteous, went to Abraham's side, which was a place of paradise, And the guy who was unrighteous went to a place of torment. In fact, in the parable, he talks about how he's on fire in torment. Where did Jesus go for the three days that his body lay in the tomb? The answer is, before Christ died on the cross, every spirit, every soul, when a person dies, their spirit separates from their body. Their body decays, goes back into the ground and returns to dust. But before Christ dies on a cross... Where do the people go? Because before Christ dies on the cross, people who are righteous can't go to heaven. There's no provision that's been made before Christ died on the cross. The animal sacrifice was just a temporary way of uh, providing temporary atonement for the sins of people. It was not sufficient to gain people access to heaven. So what happens to those people? Where did they go? Where were their souls? And what happened to the unrighteous people who died? The people who didn't practice the animal sacrificial system, which was God's only provision for temporary righteousness. So here's the answer. When you put 1 Peter 3 together with Ephesians chapter 4, Luke chapter 16, let me sew it together for us. During the three days that Jesus' body lay in the tomb, his spirit was absent from his body. The place where all departed souls went prior to the crucifixion of Christ was called in Hebrew Sheol or in the Greek Hades. Now we typically translate Hades or Sheol to mean the grave or to mean hell, but I don't want you to think of it entirely as a place of torment because Hades or Sheol was a broad term that was used for the entire place where all departed souls were kept. And that place of Hades was separated into two sections. Luke 16 tells us in that parable that there was a place of torment, a place of fire, a place of punishment. And the other side was a place of paradise where Abraham was. 
It was also called Abraham's side or the place of paradise. Remember on the cross in Luke chapter 23, Jesus promised the one repentant thief, today you will be with me in paradise. Both of those places were separated by a great gulf or a great chasm, Luke 16 tells us. When Christ died on the cross, his spirit separates from his body and his spirit went to the paradise side of Hades. Where across the chasm where the unrighteous were because they refused to believe even in the temporary provision of atonement for their sins. They didn't practice the sacrifice waiting for the Messiah. They, they rejected God, especially those Peter talks about in the days of Noah who refused to follow God. Jesus then, 1 Peter 3.15, he caruso, he heralds, he proclaims that he is the Messiah. It's basically, he's announcing the judgment of those people in the torment side who have made a choice that they have rejected God. And now it's coming full circle that Messiah there on the paradise side is proclaiming himself to be the long awaited one that God had foreordained and promised. But to the people on the paradise side, this is good news because Jesus then comes into the paradise side, announces that he is Messiah, proclaims it, heralds it, Caruso, that's the word that Peter uses there in 1 Peter 3. And then Ephesians 4, he leads the captives free. And he takes the spirits of those who were temporarily made righteous by the sacrificial system and empties paradise side of hell and takes those spirits to heaven. Where now all Christians, all believers in Christ, when you die, there's no holding tank. There's no paradise. There's no purgatory. Okay? You make a decision this side. You're either for Christ or against him. And if you make a decision for Christ, the day you die, your spirit separates from your body and immediately goes to heaven. Because now Christ has given us access to heaven, whereas before the cross, you didn't have access to heaven. It was only through the blood of Christ, so you were kept in the paradise side. So the paradise side of Hades has been emptied now. Only the torment side is the place that remains. And so this is the, the reality of our choices, either We accept what Christ has done for us, and we have our sins forgiven, and we have access to heaven. We reject him, and we suffer the eternal punishment and consequences for those decisions. But this is what Peter's talking about. Now, I want to wrap it up back here in 1 Peter chapter 3, because this ties in actually with, you know, here we are about ready to go and and baptize some folks tonight. And it almost sounds like, unless I comment on this, that baptism saves somebody, which which is not true. But at the end of chapter 3 there, notice when he talks about how Noah and his family were saved Uh, Eight people in all during the time of the flood saved through water. And then verse 21 says, there is also an antitype which now saves us baptism. Okay, baptism, not the removal of the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience toward God through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Some people read this passage and say, okay, see, baptism is necessary for salvation. Okay, listen to me on this. The water in Noah's day did not save them. God did. They were saved through the water. The water was a vehicle that showed the salvation of God. It was God's providential hand that preserved them. The water itself didn't save them. There was a boat that God provided for them. And the water on which the boat, you know, sailed was a vehicle through which they experienced, quote, salvation. But it was, it was the salvation of God. It was his, it was his divine providential hand that sustained them and saved them. Baptism 
in a similar way, is just a vehicle. The water is symbolic of something. It doesn't save us. You cannot add anything to what Christ has done by dying for us on the cross. It is faith in Christ alone. It is not faith plus baptism. It is not faith plus speaking in tongues. It is not faith plus good works. It is not faith plus penance. It is faith in Christ alone. Otherwise, if you add anything to faith in Christ alone for what Christ has done for us, you have just polluted and corrupted the truth of the gospel. And so Christ dies on a cross. We don't deserve it. There's nothing we can do to earn it. It is a free gift that he gives to all who would believe and receive. And then baptism is simply this symbolic sign that we identify with the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. And this is why we practice immersion here, which you'll see in a few minutes. When a person goes under the water, he or she is identifying with the, 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 the dead life, the old life. I'm dead to my previous life. Just as Christ died for us, and just as Christ was raised from the dead, we also rise, in a sense, to live a new life for the glory of God. The old man, the old woman, dead, and now the new person raised in newness of life. And so, good place for us to end as we celebrate those this evening who are going to be baptized. We'll pick it up there at chapter 4 next week, but let's pause and pray together. Father, we thank you for grace. We thank you for the cross. We can't improve upon it and forgive us when we try to with all of our good works as if somehow you might be impressed. Lord, thank you that the only good work that really counts for anything is the good work of Jesus Christ dying on a cross for our sins. Thank you that you've opened the way to gain us access to heaven through faith in what you've done for us, Lord. And we thank you for that free gift, how you've opened heaven to us, to all who would believe and receive. You want none to perish. No, not one. And yet none of us is righteous in ourselves. So we thank you that you made a way for us as Savior. Be with us now, Lord, as we carry on our way. We love you and give you praise, glory, and honor together in Jesus' name. And everybody said, amen and amen.